We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Welcome to the Run the Numbers podcast, the best finance podcast of all time for super ambitious people looking to get better at financial metrics and business model things. So I just got off an enthralling call with Ivan, the VP of finance at Webflow, and we quickly found a topic that me and him are both extremely passionate about. That is equity in startups. And the three things that I took away from this conversation, number one, employees are terrified to ask CFOs about startup equity. I don't really know why, because CFOs love talking about this stuff. Like, I could talk to a wall about equity. I kind of am right now because there's no one on the call except for me and producer Nancy. But people are terrified to go and ask their CFO what their equity means. The second thing that people don't ask is where the company is going. They look at equity as like this point in time thing that they're granted and then they stick it in a drawer forever. You want to get an idea of the trajectory of the business because you're making a financial decision. And the third thing is when you make that financial decision, you should think about underwriting it as an investor. The most precious asset you have is your time and you're vesting your time to get equity. But most people will put that grant in a drawer as if it's printed out, but it's all over card now. But they'll, they'll put it in a drawer. They won't check it for years. And then maybe it turns into a windfall. Maybe it doesn't. There are a lot of tax implications. There are a lot of cash considerations for the outlay that you have to make, but people don't really think that hard about it just because it's complicated and kind of scary. So those are my three takeaways. I just want to give you a couple of quick hitters, as they say, quick hitters on equity. So first thing when it comes to equity is really tactical here. The who, what, where, when, why. I don't think there's a why portion, um, but if I was to go through that, that would be number one, the number of options. So that's going to be stated as an absolute number. It could be like 2,000 shares, it could be 5,000 units, and that'll be in your offer. The second thing is the fully diluted percentage ownership. So it's important to know the denominator, especially early on at a startup. So you may not need this number as much as the company gets older and it's just based on a value of those shares. But early on, like sometimes people will say, Hey, CJ, uh, I got this, this grant. They gave me 2000 shares. Is that good? And I'm like, well, what's the 2000 out of it could be out of 4 billion shares. Like, I don't know if that's good. If you don't give me the, the denominator there, the second thing is the strike price. So the higher the strike price is, that's the more you're going to have to pay out of pocket, which kind of sucks, but that's exactly what an option is. It's an option to purchase equity in the company at a future date after you vest. So if you get granted, you know, 10,000 shares just to make it easy at a strike price of $1, eventually you have to pay $10,000 out of pocket. But if your strike price is $10, that's a lot of money that you're going to have to come up with one day in order to own those options. The next thing here is the post-termination exercise period. So, you know, forbid that you lose your job or maybe it's a good opportunity. I'll be positive here, positive CJ. And you decide to leave for a better gig. You want to know how many days you have left in order to purchase those options. 
it would really suck if it sneaks up on you and you say, I have to come up with $200,000 to exercise my options to own basically the outcome of my hard work over these last few years. So be wary of that. And lastly, the vesting schedule. Most startups have a four-year vesting schedule. The first 25% will vest after year one on the anniversary of when you started a year later. They call that a cliff. Before that, you could be let go on month 11 and you wouldn't have any equity options to, to go and purchase. But after that, it'll continue to vest usually on a monthly schedule, one forty-eighth at a time for the next four years. Now you may get top-ups and you know it ends up looking like a, a Jenga board where they're all stacked on top of each other vesting at different times. But think about it like a one-year cliff usually, and then it vests monthly, sometimes quarterly. Um, those are the things that I would write down just to know going into my negotiation. Cause you can always, it, it, it's intimidating to go in there and talk to, you know, like we said before, CFO, or maybe your boss about equity when it's this opaque subject and you don't want to act stupid in front of them. I've been there before, but if you write down the who, what, where, when, and why just to ask, at least you can go back in the silence of your home and actually look over what the offer entails so you can make a financial decision, which at the end of the day, that's what I really think it is. It's an investment decision. It's a financial decision. And, you know, there's a value on your time. So don't just put it in a drawer and enjoy this combo with Yvonne. I'm CJ Gustafson here with you again on another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm here with Ivan Makarov, VP of Finance from Webflow. Thanks so much for joining today. Excited to be here, CJ. I got to ask you right off the bat, though. So we were getting set up here, and I noticed that you're a finance leader who uses a MacBook. I feel like there's a certain stigma around that. They say not all finance leaders who use a MacBook go to jail, but those who did go to jail were using a MacBook. (laughs) Yep, that's true. We'll try to keep you out of jail on this podcast. Thank you. (laughs) So I've been following your, your career journey, and you were the first finance hire at Webflow. So you've been in charge of finance from probably around 10 million in revenue, well through what I'm assuming is 100 million in revenue. And most finance leaders, they, they get replaced somewhere along the way by you know, a gray-haired leader at scale. How have you been able to successfully evolve with the company over time? The trick is you grow your own gray hair. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think in general, I believe the key to success is to be constantly growing. I think the biggest challenge is, is the company is in hyper growth or high growth company. You have to keep scaling with the size of it. And most leaders and uh, founders, uh, I remember reading this somewhere in the Stripe story, are constantly doing something new. Every week, every month, you're at a size you've never been before. So you have to keep looking for constant feedback. You have to have good mentorship around you. People that have been there, done that, that can help you navigate that. So... When I think about that, for me, that meant three specific things um, that helped me not to get fired so far. And uh, they keep me uh, confidence levels in check too. Early in my career, somebody gave me an advice. They said, you need to have your own board of directors for your career. People that can oversee your career growth, people you can go to advice for, people that can challenge you, and typically more senior people. And so I sort of every few years handpick my own board. I don't necessarily tell the people, but these are in my mind, my board of directors. They're typically, um, one is I've always had a CFO coach. In fact, when I go into a new job, when I start interviewing for jobs, I negotiate it as part of my package at the end, because I think it's very important for somebody to have 
um, a really good mentor, but a really good coach that can push you. So I'm very lucky to work with Jim Cook, uh, who's been my coach the past couple of years, who's been CFO many times and one of the more, more experienced people that's still around and is now doing the coaching career. Also, I have a few of my former managers that I reach out to uh, for advice, especially when I'm at a crossroads or need trying to figure out what to do. There's also the nice thing about um, going through the pandemic, we all built uh, email networks. So I belong to several of them and participate actively where I can ask for advice, where I can give advice on things that I've done. So remember, we were doing our tender offer for the first time and I had never done a tender offer. And within just a few email clicks, I, I was on the phone with somebody who's done it a few times and was telling me all of the traps and what not to do when you're doing a tender offer or what to do. Lastly, I tap into our investors a lot. So whenever I need something, um, I go to our board and I say, can you connect me with a more senior CFO that can guide me through this or they can offer me advice on how to do this? Uh, and they love making introductions. Um, investors especially. We have few investors in our cap table that have been serial CFOs and they love getting on the call and sharing sharing their advice, sharing the tips or just catching up with me. So I tap into all of these resources very often. I love that. It kind of reminds me of how a lot of presidents in the U.S. have had what they call informal kitchen cabinets and those are the people that they can call on and in difficult times and say, hey, have you seen this before? What's the playbook? And I imagine a lot of the things you probably talk about with these people are the things that, that keep you up at night. What would you say kept you up at night in the early days? I think in the early days you're building. And so I, um, I was worrying mostly about hiring. And so you're building the foundation. And um, again, as a mentor advice, I once received that when you start a new job and you build a team from scratch, your first three hires are your most important hires. So you really got to double down, triple down on the amount of effort you do sourcing the candidates, interviewing candidates. You cannot settle because these three people will make or break your success. And so that really kept me up a lot. Also, it was trying to hire during very difficult years for hiring. 2020 was the year COVID began, so nobody was going anywhere. And then next year was the opposite. There was a great movement uh, that happened. People were going from company to company. And so, and everybody was hiring um, in batches because everybody raised a lot of money. And so uh, it was a war for talent. And, and I remember just those two years, I was primarily just worried about hiring, whether I was uh, hiring fast enough, I was making a mistake. And I remember there were days when I would interview three, four people on the same day. And that was just not sustainable. Because every interview you do is just takes 150% out of you. And so get you really tired and you cannot show up to an interview in the low energy, because if you do, the candidate's going to misinterpret that and, and just like this, not somebody I want to work for. So that happens. And also at a smaller company where you're early stage, series A, series B, you're not just hiring for your team. You're also interviewing for a lot of other departments. And so you're just on all sort of like many, many panels. And so um, that was um, that was a big stress. People really underestimate how much of your time goes to recruiting when the company is at hyperscale. And it's like, holy shit, I'm looking at my calendar and 50% of my day is interviews, not just for my department, but for everybody else's department, reflecting like on some of my strengths. I am probably not the most serious in terms of preparation ahead of interviews because I'm so concerned with my day job. So it's interesting to hear you reflect on how, how big of a responsibility it is to hire the right people. 
Yeah. And I like to think that, you know, my numbers, usually I have to interview at least 30 people to get to the one. And wow, that's a lot. And I think every time we make a decision on whether to bring somebody to the next stage or whether to extend an offer or not, this is a life-changing experience. And so sometimes I try not to think about that too much because it is literally a life-altering moment for somebody. But for me, I'm just trying to fill up the team. And so, I mean, to your point, you do spend a lot of time hiring. And I also think about the early stage as a bit like college football versus the pros, where you have to go out of your way to recruit people. So if you're not spending 50% of your time hiring, if you're able to hire, then um, you're probably not allocating um, your time correctly. And it's hard because the company doesn't yet have the brand, the power, at later stages, it gets a lot easier to recruit, um, but at that point, you already have a team and, and you're probably not doing as much interviewing. And so at that point, you're worried a lot more about the cultural uh, implications, whether somebody's going to be a cultural fit, whether the team is gelling together, where are the conflicts, where's the friction right now with the other departments, and how do I solve it as a leader? So that's how some of the things evolve. And I think the other thing that whenever we bring new people, they bring with uh, them their experience, their skills. And what you try not to do is not to uh, change the secret sauce of a company too much. What made companies successful at early stages earn its product market fit. Um, And the culture that the founders have built, you try not to change things too much, but at the same time, you know you have to because you have to keep growing. And so those are some of the things that worried me later. I love how you talked about kind of that inflection point with a company where you're trying to sell people and joining and then eventually it turns where people are beating down your door when the company's having success. Looking back, do you think there was an inflection point where you said, now people are coming to us and it's like almost like the pipeline has has reversed in a way? Yeah, I think for us, it was our Series B when our valuation went up to $2 billion. Um, We just found all of a sudden people from anywhere in tech um, were interested in joining and we didn't have to spend as much time selling them. People do look at valuation. They look at investors, who are the investors, who's on the board. And it's less risky when you can say investors have just invested at a billion or $2 billion yeah. valuation. When I came into my first CFO role now, it was post series B. And I remember how efficient the spend was, how frugal people were just because for years they had been that way. And I had to convince people to stop sharing hotel rooms because, you know, it was an HR violation and you can expense this when you drive from place to place. Did you have any cultural shifts you had to instill in people after you came aboard? Not for me. I certainly relate to that. Not in that area. I think for me, it was actually pretty easy because uh, that's what you want as a finance leader, the culture of scrappiness. And in fact, when we raised money, I think one of the hardest parts was trying to find where do we spend it, where we want to deploy that capital and when. And so we raised money from a position of strength and um, we looked at it as incremental capital. We actually made a term internally that uh, Vlad invented, but we, we use it quite a bit as courage capital. Courage so capital. It's a, that's a first. Courage capital. Okay. Yeah. So that's something, that's the money you can use to take greater risks, to make bets that you would make otherwise. But if it's in your DNA, a lot of the things become easier because um, those stories of uh, them sharing the room or engineers coming together for an offsite and uh, somewhere on the floor, I think they stay part of the culture, part of the early stories and people become more uh, 
careful with money when they hear that. And so you still have to deal with um, when you raise significant amount of capital later, you start filling questions. Why are we not getting bigger raises? Why are we not using that money on ourselves? But uh, you have to uh, continue to uh, remind people that the money is there to grow the business. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. When you think about building your career, you've worked at some pretty fascinating places along the way. How do you think about the element of taking risks? How have you weighed some of the decisions that you made along the way? Yeah, I think for me, when I look back, I think the biggest risk that I took was uh, taking the leap and leaving Ernst & Young. It's a very safe job, very predictable career ladder, a lot of great mentors. You have all the resources to your fingertips. Some of the best people you'll ever find in business are just an instant message away. And when I was leaving for a startup, one of my mentors at the time told me, don't just send an email and tell everybody you're leaving and here's my personal email, but go and visit them and uh, tell them in their office and have a conversation because you never know when you're going to need these people, especially when you're leaving a big firm like that. And so I remember I went to one of the more senior partners in the office. So I didn't have a lot of interaction with, but he was one of the more important people. And and I thought he was going to tell me I was wrong and trying to convince me to stay and and how many people have made that mistake that I was about to make. But instead, he actually sat down with me and said, you know what? I'm very jealous. I'm too old now to leave. I've been here for 20 plus years and I make too much money to be able to leave. But I've always wanted to try to do what you're trying to do, which is the run finance department and be a CFO one day. And so you're living my dream. Go. And the other thing he told me was that uh, you're always safe to come back. So when you're leaving on good terms, especially leaving a big company, they're always going to welcome you back. They, Ernst & Young, for example, has a very healthy boomerang program. A lot of people return later, sometimes two years later, sometimes 20 years later. And so... He said, just don't bring bridges and you're always welcome back and we'll find something for you. And so for me, that what felt like a great risk to go to a startup, uh, once I heard that was actually, I felt that was a risk free. And so you have to take other people's um, advice into the considerations. You have to consider uh, different angles and you have to believe in yourself. I think for me, my upbringing, I'm an immigrant, so... What I did when I came to the United States by myself with nothing, I think, was much bigger, bigger risk than I'll ever take in my life here. So, so it felt like the right thing to do and uh, with a lot of upside and very few downsides. Uh, switching gears a bit, I wanted to get to a topic that I know both me and you are, are pretty passionate about, and that's, uh, that's startup equity. So um, just to kind of frame things up here and, and uh, get into it, what do you think are some of the most misunderstood elements of startup equity? I think it's valuation. A lot of the people, they just trust the valuation and they don't, they don't do any of their own work. And they think that uh, it's just very easy to look up, right? You just Google it. Uh, you go to Crunchbase and you see the last round and you think that's the company's valuation. So they don't do their own due diligence. They also often think that um, this is where I actually get on a number of these calls with People were trying to hire, they're trying to understand equity, where uh, they think that the current valuation is where they will land as far as their equity, that they're giving a dollar value or maybe some share value by the recruiter. And they think, well, this is what it's going to worth for uh, years from now. But you have to do math. How you do it can vary. What I 
tend to drive people towards as a finance leader, you cannot tell people what you think the company is going to be worth a few years from now. So you have to lead them to where they can do their own math. Um, so you don't um, have them believe in something that is, that is not true and rely on that advice in the hiring process. So you have to be very careful. So what I do is I talk to them about um, business metrics. So this obviously has to be done after they signed an NDA, but you're able to open up with them and you talk about the growth. You talk about what were some of the most important metrics that the investors looked at during the last round. Why did they invest? Uh, if it's a leadership hire, I often just put them directly with the investors, with uh, board members they are also usually happy to jump on the call and try to close candidates. So you talk to them about that, and then you talk about some of the comparable companies, and you could say uh, something like, well, this is where we are today. If you imply a similar growth trajectory, and the product strategy that we have, we could be like that company one day, but this is why we need you. We have a lot of work to do. And this is what you could believe and what, you, what your equity could be worth a few years from now. So you talk about implied valuation of the company. You believe the company is worth a billion. What has to be true for that company to be worth $10 billion? And what are the companies today in that space that are worth $10 billion? And you look at specific public companies and you uh, can have a conversation about that. I like how you're arming them to come up with their own investment thesis in the company that they're going to work for. Yeah, I think a lot of the people don't think that way. Um, they take a simpler approach. I So many times I get on these calls with candidates and I can just tell they just Googled the questions to ask about equity. And these are good uh, questions to ask. So typically they would ask, what is the number of shares outstanding? Or um, what was the last preferred price? And so those things don't tend to be important at all. And so you want to talk to them about the broader picture and what the equity could be worth if the company succeed. But you also have to warn them that every company can go to zero tomorrow. So make yeah. that decision. And it's especially a difficult decision for people that are coming out of public company where they know they're going to get those RSUs every quarter or every six months, whatever the cadence is. And so you have to uh, tell them that this is the downside. As a CFO, I actually really enjoy it when people come to me and ask about the equity story. I, I don't know what it is. There's this reticence to ask CFOs about equity and to explain it to them because it's this opaque subject. But to me, it comes across as you're invested in this company. You want to see it succeed and, and you want to arm yourself with more information. So I'll even go as far to help them build their own template. Like I won't fill it in with where I think the company's going. I'll, I'll help them come up with their own thesis on it. But what's your kind of thinking about when employees come and ask you questions about equity? I totally agree. I love having that conversation, preferably not over Slack. People yeah. take screenshots. <laughs> yeah. So I would, uh, I, would, I would caution against doing that over Slack. But I say, hey, let's jump on the call. We'd love to chat about it. And proactively, uh, every six months or so, I actually do equity training at the nice. company as well. A lot of the folks we hire now, um, we're a later stage company, still a private company, but they come from a public company. And there's major differences between private RSUs and public company RSUs. And so we start with that when we talk about the training. At one point when we were switching to RSUs, we also had to do a lot of training explaining the difference between options and RSUs and what are the pros and cons. And so we go through that. 
But um, I just love jumping on calls and telling them, um, here's, here's what this could be worth. Here's what you should think about. And then, of course, tax questions come up. Um, I don't like to talk about tax, even though I think I have a pretty good grasp on what happens with tax and RSUs. But um, again, you channel them to talk to their financial advisors. But in general, I think that's what keeps people at the companies, at these startups, private companies that do have an equity potential, is what it could be worth one day. And we like to remind people in those trainings that we're all owners. And I find that it helps to distribute capital better. It helps uh, teams that are, for example, in charge of spending money, uh, maybe spend it more frugally or spend it with more discipline because they realize that uh, every million dollar burned is less equity potentially for them at the end of the road. But it's really, really important to understand the equity implications because that's where the all upside is. Yeah. And I've taken pay cuts on the cash portion personally two times in my career because I believed in the equity story so much. That's the right way to think about it. Typically, you can have the cash, more cash when you're negotiating an offer, you can have more equity. And so that's the scale that swings one way or another. And so I think these are some of the more important questions to ask uh, the recruiter uh, when you're switching jobs. And I also recommend uh, people to ask about what's the potential liquidity looks like. Have you done tender offers before right, planning right. on doing them? Or what's the path to an IPO or path to an exit? And so typically it's pretty hard to get those questions answered early in the process, but later stage, people open up about it. And especially later stage, if you're talking to an investor or you're talking to one of the leaders at the company, these are the right questions to ask. A lot of people never ask them. What's your philosophy, both professionally and personally, on, on taking advantage of secondary opportunities? I think you have to do risk. So if there's an opportunity, you uh, take it. You never know when that next opportunity comes. Some companies in the good years used to do secondary offerings almost every year, but those were very few companies. They had to be have raising money often and also be one of those top five, top 10 startups. Uh, and so at an average sort of a good startup, um, those opportunities may only come once or twice, if that at all. So If that, yeah, now. Yeah, so if, if given, you should take the chips off the table and maybe put them to use somewhere else, or you never know when you're going to need that emergency money, whether it's for health reasons or family reasons situations. And so that's typically how um, I think about it. Valuations change, and yeah, there's likely an opportunity cost of selling at, let's say, a 300 million valuation versus a, a billion or 2 billion valuation. But in that moment, I have to think about what's, what's today, what, what's today and what could be tomorrow. I think Charlie Munger said it, uh, it. It's very possible to get rich selling too early. It's impossible to get rich selling too late. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think for equity, it is such a complex topic that's constantly evolving. So I feel this is why I'm also really passionate and uh, intellectually curious about it is because Every week, every month, whatever, you could be learning something new about equity. And that's also one of the more popular topics in all of our CFO networks, um, because we are navigating very different market today than we were living in a couple of years ago. And so that area is also constantly evolving. We're talking, you know, late August here, and it recently came out in the news that Ramp did a down round, but it sounded like one of the reasons why they did it was to actually allow for employees to have some liquidity. So they are, sounds like allowing employees to sell. And at the same 
time, Databricks did a round, and it was actually higher than the last round, I think. But from what I read in the news, they are not allowing employees to participate in the secondary. So you as a CFO, do you have a take on, on any of that? Should companies always allow employees to sell? Or how do, you, how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, that's a tricky one, right? So what sometimes happens if you overextend the secondary opportunity, people take too much chips off the table and they lose motivation. And so you can lose some of your more valuable people because have they're not financially independent. Yeah, we've seen that some of the early engineers have left. And so a lot of the times they're actually leaving for something better. They're leaving to go start their own business because now they can take a year or two off. Oh, because now they and have build something. to de-risk. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So that can happen. Um, but it also, I'm generally, it should not be prevented from happening because the people that have been there, especially in the early days, should be properly rewarded. Mm-hmm. And because they are, they've built some of that original code. They've built some of these original frameworks. And so they should be well rewarded for that. And so I think given the opportunities, it's important. I see why companies do it now because uh, that is oftentimes the easier path than going public. And you can extend your window to go public if you have good secondary opportunities. But that's that's where you also have to be careful. And I think Generally, investors do a pretty good job calculating that because that can also happen with founders. We have seen all too many stories uh, last few years where founders took too much off yeah, the table. Yeah, there have been a couple of nightmare stories. And nightmare stories, and that absolutely ran these businesses into the ground because the founders just lost touch with, uh, with the reality. And they were not motivated to keep growing those businesses when they could afford these $10 million, $20 million homes and multiple vacation homes. Like why, why keep trying hard when, when you know your bank account is set for the rest of your life? I wrestle with that myself. Like how much should founders take off the table? Like a lot of them have given up a decade of their lives, literally <laughs> sleeping on couches, eating ramen. And then they have an opportunity to put money away, make sure that their families are okay. The kids can go to college. But it's like, is there an amount that is too much? And I, I still haven't come to terms with what it is. Yeah, you're right. I don't think there's the right answer. And uh, we also don't know how people react to money. That is always an interesting story as well that I love listening to the podcast with some of the more successful founders that have seen multiple exits, whether it changed them. Some people change and they, um, Tom from MySpace is a prime example, completely disappeared after selling MySpace. I haven't done another business and I think he's been traveling the world doing things like photography and other pursuits. And then you have uh, multiple serial founders like Stuart at Slack and might do another one, who knows? And so uh, who just have that? They don't care so much about the money. They just want to be challenged. And for them, it's building new businesses and starting new products. I, I really like how you said that. It's the person's relationship with money and how, how they react to it. That's what you can't predict. Yeah. I remember hearing Ryan Smith from Qualtrics said it that he thought it was going to be like some big seminal moment when the money lands in the bank account and they were at a party somewhere celebrating, I think they sold to SAP. And when the money landed, they all kind of looked at each other and just shrugged their shoulders and just like, let's go back to work. And so it wasn't anything, (laughs) it wasn't anything that all of a sudden you have to go and spend it. Um, It was a, it was a moment, but he's like, I remember him saying that it didn't really change anything. So we talked about how much companies are worth and how to incent employees. I wanted to talk just a bit about running the company and, the metrics you look at day to day to make sure you're on track and, and drive that value for shareholders over time. So Yvonne, you wake up in the morning, you open your phone or laptop. What's the first metric you look at? I have a bookmark 
on my Chrome bar, first thing I'll look at, there's a dashboard, growth dashboard. So I really just pay attention to two things on that dashboard is one, what is our ARR today? And two, what is our daily new subscriptions, net new subscriptions? Because it gives me a pulse check on the overall health of the business with ARR. And subscriptions just tells me what's happening this week, what's happening this month, are we going to have a good month or are we starting to trail behind the plan? And so are you looking at total ARR or like net new ARR for the period? I look at total. I can generally remember what it was yesterday or what it was a week ago last time I checked. I like that. And uh, just to be tactical, so you look on your desktop uh, and you and you save it in a folder. Is that, is that what you do? Yeah, Chrome. Actually, my very first folder on Chrome says metrics, and I have probably 20, 30 different links in there um, that I keep adding to and important dashboards because we're still using multiple tools to track metrics. And so I just bookmark them. So it could be we use Tableau, could be Clary when I'm looking at sales metrics, could be NetSuite if I'm digging something PL related. So I um, have various different uh, easy clicks. And what are the top three metrics that you steer the exec team to look at and put milestones against on a, on a regular basis? We care about, I think, like in the order of priority is uh, growth. Uh, what is our uh, current growth trajectory? What is our cash flow? And especially against the plan, um, that one's, we can only refresh it once a month. And then just the ARR uh, and NRR. I actually, it's really important to look at both. It's kind of the same, almost one metric because they tell you the picture of the future. The NRR especially is going to tell you mm. as you scale, you reach yeah. a certain size, which I think companies can scale on one product without true expansion to hundred million. Once you get to hundred million, you have to look for other ways. You have to look at expansion opportunities because at some point organic growth starts to slow down. And for many, many companies, most companies, it eventually stops. Yeah. And those acquisition channels that you previously relied on are, are suddenly a lot more expensive. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So you, you have to keep track of that and that gives you the picture. Cool. Cool. And you're staffing your team to be analytical and inform the business on how it's performing. I'm wondering if you could give us an example of, you know, the last thing or, or one of the more recent things you asked your team to run the numbers on. Yeah, we're in the middle of uh, building a three-year model for a business and three years really then supporting of the three-year strategy exercise. And so um, those last few weeks, we've been building a three-year cash flow forecast as part of that. And so that was by um, asking something and work with the team. So what I actually ended up doing, um, this is something I've built many times. And I think cash flow forecast is one of the more complex models because you have to understand both accounting, you have to understand the business, you have to understand what's happening in your AP and AR and the customers. And so what I did is I built a, a model um, based on the previous actuals and what I think will happen in the future and gave them, it's called a skeleton of a model that's really ugly and high level and took a bunch of shortcuts. And in fact, we later found a bunch of uh, errors in it as well, formula errors. But, uh, but I gave him uh, sort of the vision of what I want our model to look like that would fit into our overall three-year model. And then a couple of weeks later, the team came back and gave me a much better version of it uh, that eliminated some of these errors with much more fidelity, also better designed um, and better and useful and flows works with everything else. So, Sometimes um, I do that as I give people an idea of what I think model should look like. Other times we just give a very high level description and just wait for the team to build out and, and I fully trust them. Do you think of your business in three years, 
five-year forecasts. What's long-term for you? Yeah, we're working on three years. Um, I think initially you start with like, okay, let's try to predict the next 12 months and have an annual plan and uh, ability to forecast. I think we, we've gotten there comfortably and we're able to um, last several years to present the plan and the forecast to the board um, that was within healthy ranges. And so what we're working on now is tying three things together. Is you have your product strategy, you have your go-to-market strategy of how you're going to sell this product, and then you have your financial model. And the three of them have to all work well in unison together in order for you to understand what's going to happen with the business and what levers you have. Because at a SaaS company, you have levers within all three. You can put capital, deploy capital to hire more salespeople or uh, paid acquisition. You have the products you're going to ship that will hopefully improve your metrics and let you expand the business. And then you have your go-to-market is how are you going to utilize those and how you're going to sell. So that's been my exercise. I think three years is a good horizon. That is mm -hmm. medium term. I'd love to get how Snowflake does their 20-year model. So, but we're certainly not there yet. My goodness, 20 years. 20 years and they, they keep yeah, they keep presenting. They're it doing the something right, though. Watch everyone after listening to this podcast. Ivana is going to go and make a twenty-year model because Snowflake is crushing it. Yeah, um, I, I love I love how it's all linked together. So changing gears a little bit, I wanted to go over the impact of your background, family. You know, everybody is motivated in this startup world to grind it out, but they all got something to, to go home to, and keeping that in perspective is important. I I find myself I have to check myself to put guardrails, I think, around my working habits. I'm a, I'm a first-time father. I got a one-and-a-half-year-old and, and another one on the way. I wanted to ask, what's your approach to work-life balance? Do you have any ways that you're able to put down work or, or rituals to kind of close up the day? Yeah. I, I, well, first, I don't believe in the work-life balance as, as something that can exist. I, I think what it is is... Um, some things will always be out of balance and you just have to carefully choose what can be out of balance right now. Sometimes that means that's going to be the family, unfortunately. Other times uh, that means the family needs to be prioritized and so you might not do your best work and um, so on and so forth. But generally, what I do like is to create non-finance outlets in my life where I can channel some of my energy but also or regenerate energy. So for me, kids... Um, kids is something that's a top priority for me. I got four. And so they're now two of them are teenagers. And so I'm personally not that most creative father that's going to go and come up with all these activities to do on their own with their kids. Maybe it's the kind of lifestyle I, I do at work where it's so unpredictable that I just, I don't have that. So what I do is I create structure. So, uh, last year, for example, for me, that was hockey coaching. I coached one of my kids' teams. Yeah. In so fact, then like later, that was cool. yeah. And in the spring, we also, my wife and I together, just, uh, careful, uh, if you're married together, we coached soccer team for our, our youngest son and they needed volunteers and that actually created that schedule. So just like at work, when you have a meeting and you know, you can't get out of it, you're going to show up. It's the same way I think we can take that extra step and volunteer, belong to an organization, or start actively participating. Uh, with my wife, I like to create more uh, structure in our lives with our kids so we know we have to take them there. We've paid the money yeah. for it, and we're going to be there. And so uh, for me, that created a lot of boundaries. I remember so many times 
especially being a volunteer coach, you have to be on the ice. You have to be there on the field with the kids. You can't be on your laptop. As a parent, I remember I've missed too many practices, sometimes games, when I just get there to the arena and I still have to answer that email that that model was never finished. And so I have to go sit there in the stands and finish it. Yeah, you sit it on or, your phone all the time in the stands. Yeah, I've seen that with parents all the time. Yeah. I remember I was we were fundraising and I was in the in the in the stands. And so that was not it was not that fun. But that creates more separation and that creates like the hard stops from work. And so for me that helped. Yeah, I like that a lot. Gearing towards a close here, I'm gonna take us into what we call the long ass lightning round. And so my first question for you here is, what's an example of something you've screwed up on the job? It could be here at this company or at another company. I didn't always trust my instincts on hiring. And maybe I overemphasized uh, the team's feedback. And I knew that this was not the person. I just felt that I couldn't tell it in scorecards, but mm. I just felt something was off. And my instincts were there, but the scorecards were good. And I let us hire and then 12 months later, 18 months later, when we're uh, managing this person out of our organization, I was like, I knew it. I knew yeah, it you had the, the gut feel. I had the gut feel, and now we're in a worse position than we were two years ago. So I think that those are some of the bigger mistakes we often make. Can you walk me through your finance software stack? What are you using today to, to run the finance team? Yeah, we use NetSuite as our ARP, a zip Shout for out NetSuite. procurement. We love NetSuite. Yeah. Yeah. Zip for procurement and procure to pay. We're also on Ramp, love Ramp here. Uh, for analytics, we use Tableau, Snowflake, Captivate IQ for sales comp. We use Leapfin for RevRec, and we still use uh, at our stage G Suite for all of FPNA. So we're going to make a transition to uh, for for a planning tool, but we're able to get away with uh, very smart people who magicians with uh, Google Sheets, and so it's cheap as well. And most recently, we just bought Aleph. Uh, which is the source of truth for finance, uh, scenario planning, and some of the model automation. All right. Last one here. What's the craziest thing you've ever had someone try to expense? So we pay people for health. We pay them health stipend to do something fun for their health. And so sometimes that includes things like gardening. And uh, one time we saw somebody try to expense a chainsaw. <laughs> for mental That's health. A- I guess that works, right? Uh, but that was a little extreme. I have so many questions. Uh, okay. That, that's a great one. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the pod today. This is one of my favorite combos so far. So uh, I really appreciate you carving out time for us. Yeah. Good, good to chat, CJ, and really appreciate all you're doing for uh, online community of finance folks. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Cheers. Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.